Zoom recording. So if nothing else, Zoom is recording and we'll see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom into your wisdom and insight into your text today, not just so that we can pile up our knowledge and uh, have our mental furniture, but we want to know you. We want to know your word. We want to let you have your way in our lives. So guide us and direct us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking today at Mark chapter 1. We've looked the last few weeks in this Bible study at ways of approaching the text, of dividing it up into sections. And today we're going to start asking questions of the text. We're going to look at the first section, the first section I've identified, which is verses uh, 1 through 8. And I'd break that up into a, another section. Uh, good morning, Ashley. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hope, hopefully this is working okay for you. Um, I'm going to break it up into two subsections, verses 1 through 8, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 8. So let's read the text. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair, the leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we were talking about the idea of asking questions last week, I suggested that we ask questions not because we're questioning the text, not because we're questioning God, but we're asking questions of the text because that's how understanding happens. We come to understand any text by asking questions of it as we delve into its meaning. So some of the questions we're going to notice here are, are positive questions. My first question, however, that, that comes to me as I approach the text here in Mark chapter 1 is a negative question. First question is, why does Mark not include a birth story? You look at Matthew, Matthew starts with a genealogy and a birth story. We see Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Luke. Luke starts with the story of the angel coming to Zechariah, telling him that he's going to have a son, John the Baptist. The angel comes to Mary, tells her she's going to have a son, Jesus. And both Matthew and Luke contain birth stories. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all synoptic gospels. They look at the life of Jesus from a similar perspective. They, they have this optic. You don't, you don't know what optic is. Optic is viewing, looking at in Greek. We have this... Uh, and so sin optic means to view with. John's different. John, John doesn't start off with a birth story, but he starts off with a cosmic beginning story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John's beginning. But Mark, Mark doesn't start with a birth story. Why not? Uh, so remember, when we talked about asking questions last week, we said not all questions will we know how to answer. Not all questions will we'll have answers. Some of them will, and we'll maybe find some of those today. But the starting point in understanding any text is asking questions of it. So my first question is, 
why does Mark not include a birth story? So a second question that I have is, does the use of beginning, the word beginning in verse one, point toward what follows immediately, or does it refer to the gospel as a whole? In other words, I'm asking the question here, does verse one and maybe verses one through three, does it apply just to what he's talking there immediately about John the Baptist and his ministry and, and about Jesus' beginning of his ministry? Or is this a, taken as a preface, an introduction to the whole gospel? One of the things I wonder about. Uh, also might wonder about this word beginning and how it links to beginning language in Genesis. Remember how Genesis starts. In the beginning, God created heaven, the heavens and the earth. Or the Gospel of John. Gospel of John obviously appeals to Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see these commonalities. So, uh, third question. What does Mark mean by good news? What does he think is good about it? How is it news? Uh, now, the word translated here is euangelion. Uh, we get our word evangelist from that. The EV comes from the Greek EU, which means good. And angelos, angelia, means, means a message uh, or, or, or news. So I think it's really important that what we see in the gospel in, in this is, is news. As news, it's something that happens it's something in history. It's, it's not just abstract. It's not just truths. It's not just principles. It's news. It's something God has done. God has invaded our space. God has invaded our world in the person of his son, Jesus. He's come into history. He's not just standing off at a distance in eternity, throwing us truth, throwing us principles. He's come as one of us, among us. And, and what's good about it? Well, we might think God's come and, and man, look at Jesus. It sure was rough for him. Look what the crowds did to him. Look what his disciples ended up doing to him. It doesn't sound very good. Or, or we might think, ooh, God's coming into the world to bring judgment and condemnation. But man, we can go back to the Gospel of John again. Everybody knows John 3.16. We don't all know John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. God sent Jesus for our good, to, to bless us. So this is news. It's good news. Uh, I've sort of combined my fourth question in there. My fourth question is, how is it significant that it is news and not just truths or principles? Uh, the fifth question I have is, why does Mark use the titles Messiah and Son of God in this context? And what does he mean by each? How would, would, how would his audience understand each? So we know what Messiah is. We, we know Messiah comes from the, the Hebrew Mashiach. Uh, we, we know that uh, uh, the Greek translation of that is Christos, which we get our word Christ. So Christ, Messiah mean the same thing. And you'll some, run across some translations that don't translate Christos as Christ, or Mashiach as Messiah. They, they translate it as king. 
Because this, this idea here is Jesus is king. But why does Mark use this Messiah language? I think he's looking back to the Old Testament. And he's looking back to Jesus. And what he's, the story he's telling here is a fulfillment of what God has promised in the Old Testament. And it's a, a, a continuation of the trajectory of God's activity as we see it in the Old Testament. So, but what about Son of God? What does Mark mean by Son of God? Well, we, we know what Son of God means. We know Jesus is Son of Man, completely human, and Son of God, completely divine. But, that, but that's not the only way Son of God language is used. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, it's more common that Son of God language is used not to talk about divinity, but to talk about kingship. In fact, later on, as we look at Mark, we'll, we'll see as we turn to the Son of Man language, that the Son of Man language is taken from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, this person who is a Son of Man looks very divine. It's really, really a high Christology to call Jesus Son of Man with reference to Daniel chapter 7. So th then we go to the other part of the question here. So wh why does Mark use the titles Messiah and Son of God in this context? And what does he mean by that? And how would his audience understand them? If he's writing to a Jewish audience, the Jewish audience would understand it one way because they have the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament usage of Son of God language to go by. But if he's writing to a Gentile crowd, what do Gentiles, what do non-Jews, how do they understand what a son of God is, what a Messiah is? That's pretty hard for them to figure out. So uh, let's see, question number six. Is Mark talking about the good news about Jesus? That is where Jesus is the content of the good news. So the good news is about him. Or is it the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is proclaiming a message, and the message that Jesus proclaims is good news, and John and Mark is reporting that good news as told by Jesus. Now, the Greek here is somewhat ambiguous and can go either direction. I'd lean toward him, meaning the good news about Jesus, and that the good news about Jesus includes the good news of Jesus, the good news that Jesus proclaims, the good news that Jesus teaches. Oh, question seven. Oh, we get into verse two here. Uh, quotation in verse two. Let's read that quotation. Uh, verse two reads, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So, Mark says, I am going to quote Isaiah to you. And he does quote Isaiah, but he quotes Isaiah only after quoting Malachi. Huh. So, we see this first part here. This, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's, that's from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It's, it's the second part of the quotation. A voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's, that's from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. So why, why is Mark only mentioning Isaiah? Why does he not mention Malachi? 
I don't know here. Uh, verse, uh, my eighth question is, who is the you in verse 2? Remember verse 2 says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who, who, who's the I here? Who, who's, who's sending the message? Well, it makes sense that it's God. God's speaking to the prophet Malachi back in Malachi chapter 3. So uh, God's sending the messenger, his messenger ahead of you. Who, who's the you? Well, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's the Messiah that he's going to send. Uh, let's see. Question nine. How does the messenger prepare the way? Why does the way need preparing? We notice there in verse uh, three, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Uh, well, verse two, I'm sorry. I'm uh, send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Why does the way for Jesus need to be prepared? Well, we see, we're going to see John the Baptist out in the wilderness proclaiming repentance, offering baptism to people, giving them a chance to respond to God, to turn from their sin, and to turn to Jesus. So maybe, maybe that's preparation. Uh, question 10, is the work of preparing the way something completed by John? Or is there any sense in which even today the way of the Lord needs to be prepared? Did John finish the work? Is John the Baptist's work, okay, I, I prepared the way for the Lord and now I'm finished. There's no more preparing to be done. Uh, I wonder. I think there is still work to be done. I still think that through our words, through our actions, through the way we live our lives, that we are preparing the way for the Lord. We are preparing for the people around us to meet Jesus, to hear about him, to learn of him. So I think there's still preparation work to be done. So I think we can maybe learn from John the Baptist on that. Uh, question 10, is the word, uh, let's see, we did question 10. Question 11, who is the voice calling in the wilderness? You see there in verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Who's the voice? Well, it seems sort of obvious that it is John the Baptist doesn't say that it is. We don't see John's name used explicitly in Isaiah's prophecy. But it looks like John the Baptist. Um, verse 12. Why is the voice calling in the wilderness? Why not in town where the people are? John is apparently, as we'll see later, doing his work outside of Jerusalem, out in the wilderness. Wouldn't it have been more effective if he did his work in Jerusalem? That's where the people are. Or maybe Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not too far away. Go to Bethlehem. There's people there. Or go to Jericho. Jericho's not too far away. Or Bethany. All these towns, not too far away. John could have gone to those places. But no, the prophecy from Isaiah and what John actually does is he goes into the wilderness. Why, why the wilderness? Well, we might go back to the Old Testament. And see how much happens in the wilderness there. We, we see Moses leading the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. Maybe this time of John, his preparation time, his 
preparing the way of the Lord is similar to that preparing time that is going on with Moses in the wilderness. Morning, Charlene. Good to see you. Uh, good to see all of you today. Um, so that's, that's one possibility. Let's see. Question 13. What does the voice expect people to do as they prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him? We've seen in verse 2 that they're preparing, uh, that the messenger is preparing the way. But in verse 3, it's a voice. And we said that's probably John the Baptist. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So if the messenger, if, if the voice, if John the Baptist is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, what does he expect people to do? What, what does making a straight path look like for him? Uh, well, if, if you're going through the wilderness, a straight path is one that's easy to find. It's easy to navigate. There's, there's not lots of steep places that you need to climb up or, or cliffs you need to descend. So, so maybe John's saying, maybe the voice is saying, as you prepare the way, it's, it's not just something for you. It's not just a message for you, for you to hear and respond to God, but it's a message for you to take part in, to join in, that you too will become a messenger so that through the way you speak, what you say, and how you live, people will find the way to God easy. They'll be able to respond. So let's see. Um, uh, question 14. Question 14, we move on to verse 4. Verse 4 says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So my question 14 is, where did John come from? What was he doing before he appeared in the wilderness? Now, what we know from the Gospel of Mark is nothing. We know nothing about Mark, know nothing about his history, uh, nothing at all. Uh, if we go to the Gospel of Luke, we get to see who John is. John is a, a member of a priestly family. His family, his dad, Zechariah, is a priest uh, in the course of Abijah. Uh, he's a relative of Jesus, a cousin of Jesus. Don't see any of that here in Mark. We just see that he's a voice. In the wilderness, we see nothing of what he was doing beforehand. Knowing what we know in Mark, it's possible that John, while he was growing up, was training to be a priest. The job of the priest was to serve in the temple and to serve as a teacher, a teacher of the law, a teacher of the ways of God. So maybe that's where Mark, uh, where, where John Baptist got his training. Other people, uh, New Testament scholars, think that he might have been in the wilderness with the Essenes the people who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, again, we see none of that in Mark or any of the other scriptures. The scriptures don't even mention the Essenes. We see those um, elsewhere. We see them mentioned in Josephus. Question 15. What prepared John for his mission? How did he gain an understanding of his mission? Again, it's possible if John was raised in a priestly family, that being raised in that setting uh, trained him to be a, a messenger, helped him know the scripture. Now, it could also be that it was in that context that he read the book of Malachi, and that reading the book of Malachi, he internalized it. And God used that scripture in his life, that when he read it, 
God said to him, John, you are the one. And, and maybe at this time also, he remembered the words of his father, Zechariah, and the prophecy that Zechariah was given through the angel, that his son would prepare the way for the Lord. So between what he learned from his father and what he learned from Scripture, maybe that's what prepared John the Baptist for this mission. Uh, verse, uh, question 16. Did John understand himself primarily as Isaiah's voice from Isaiah 40, a voice calling in the desert, in the wilderness? Or was it Malachi's messenger? Did he think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy in, in, in Malachi, the one he mentions? Or maybe, this, this isn't mentioned here explicitly, maybe, maybe he thinks of himself as an Elijah, an Elijah who had ministry in the wilderness. Uh, maybe, maybe an Elijah who wore the kind of clothes, ate the kind of food, that John the Baptist wore and ate. And, and I follow up that question with wondering how this self-understanding, how, how his knowledge of what he gained from his father, his knowledge of what he got from reading Isaiah, from reading Malachi, from knowing the stories of Elijah, how that shaped his self-understanding and how that shaped his actions. Uh, my 17th question, how did people hear about John so they could come out to him? What was the attraction going out to see him? So uh, in, in our age, well, at least up until recently, uh, how do we get people to come to church? Well, a lot of times you have a building and the building um, may or may not be inviting. There may not, may be a sign out front that says, uh, welcome, come visit us. Might even give times of worship services. Uh, nowadays in the age of social media and the internet, we can say things like uh, we can share invitations online, we can share Facebook posts, we can share YouTube videos, lots of ways we can get the word out. We can also go person to person. I don't think John used Facebook. I don't think John built a building in the wilderness. I think gradually one or two people came across him and it was word of mouth. It was something like, hey, there's a prophet out in the wilderness. Let's go see what he has to say. And prophets were rare in those days. They thought maybe prophecy had ceased. So a, the presence of a real prophet, something exciting. So they went out to see what the prophet had to say, hoping to hear what God had to say. Uh, question 18. Uh, let's see, people heard about John from hearsay. Yep, uh, they passed the word along. Some of that good gossip. So hopefully from time to time, people will hear what we as Christians have to say by what we say to each other. Question 18, where did John get the idea of baptism? Uh, what in their context helped the people accept the idea of baptism as a legitimate activity? Now, if you read the scholar liter literature, you'll read that the Jews in the first century practiced what was called a proselyte baptism. So if somebody came into Judaism from outside, they were a Gentile, then they would be baptized to become a Jew. And people assume, oh, yeah, that's where John got the idea. And that's how his audience would understand this idea of baptism. Well, there's some problems with, with that view. Uh, one is that in proselyte baptism, people baptized themselves. They'd get, a, uh, get in a place with water and splash themselves. They'd wash themselves. It'd be a ceremonial washing they did to themselves. That's, that's a difference from what we see John the Baptist doing, Jesus doing, and, and the church ended up doing. Uh, it's, it's also that we don't really have any 
early attestation to proselyte baptism. All, all we see is later on, maybe into first century, into the second century, into the third century, the talk of proselyte baptism. So we don't know what came first. We don't know if Jew Jewish proselyte baptism came first or John's baptism came first and that they were learning from John. Or we could look at, again at the Essene community, the committee at Qumran that, that uh, created the Dead Sea Scrolls. They practiced many ceremonial washings and the Jews did ceremonial washings. Maybe they extrapolated from those ceremonial washings. Uh, so let's go on. Can't deal with these forever. Okay, question 19. What is the connection between baptism, repentance, and forgiveness? Did the baptism affect forgiveness? Did it make forgiveness happen? If John's baptism affected forgiveness, what more would Jesus have to do? So there's some connection between John ba John's baptism of repentance for forgiveness. All those three things are mixed up together. Baptism, repentance, forgiveness. So we can look at repentance this way. Repentance is most obviously us changing our minds, changing our ways, turning away from our old ways. But it's also a turning to new ways. Let's hold on to that for a minute. Forgiveness is at least, and most commonly as we think of it, we're sinners and we have these marks against us. And in forgiveness, those marks against us are dealt with. They're, they're erased. We are forgiven. Our, our, our demerits are scratched out. We now have peace with God. Okay, so baptism is maybe for John where we come to God, we turn away from our old way of living, our, our, our sinful way of being Israel, of pretending to be God's people, living as God's people, and turning to God. And that the turning to God, walking with him, is an ongoing experience of forgiveness, of, of letting go, of, of us letting go of our sin, us letting go of our old lifestyle, and God letting go of, of our sin. Wiping it out. So let's see, question 20. Question 20, I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm not going to pay much attention to it. Leave it for your imagination. Question 20 is, what is the relation, if any, between the baptism of John and Christian baptism? Well, if you've ever seen a Christian baptism, you know that when I baptize somebody, I baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John didn't do that. We don't know what words John used when he baptized people, if any. But there is not yet the, the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as Christians, we look at Christian baptism as that Trinitarian baptism. That's, that's why there's some churches out there that we don't recognize their baptism, because they're baptizing in a different context, not the Trinitarian gospel that Christians proclaim. But most other baptisms out there, we accept. If you're baptized as a Catholic, hey, that's good enough for us Methodists. Baptized as a Baptist, good enough for us Methodists. Baptized as a Pentecostal, good enough for us Methodists. Baptized as a Presbyterian, good enough for us Methodists. Because each one uses the Trinitarian formula, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what's the relationship between John's baptism? Jesus submitted to it. Jesus went and said, okay, I'm going to be baptized by you. And he was baptized, gave into it. Uh, was confusing to John, as we see in Matthew chapter 3. 
but John let him do it. And then Jesus, we see, started baptizing. Although Jesus' mission, ministry of baptism was never as extensive as John's. And then we see in the book of Acts that the disciples themselves took up the ministry of baptism. We see Jesus telling them to baptize people in the Great Commission. So baptism was a normal part of Christian life, Christian church. What's the relationship between Christian baptism and John's baptism? Something I wonder about here. Uh, question 23, or question 22. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, question 22. Did all people go out to see John, or is Mark using hyperbole? You notice here that it says uh, in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside, that's everybody that lives in the boonies, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. When he says all the people of Jerusalem, does he mean literally all the people? Or is he using hyperbole? Is he using a figure of speech here and saying, man, the crowds were big. Lots of people came out to see John. Okay. What attracted people to John? Was, was it the fact that, hey, it's a prophet. We get to hear a prophet. We get to hear a word from God. Or is it just that he was entertaining and going, ah, look at this crazy guy out here wearing funny clothes. And if you look real carefully, you'll see him pick up a grasshopper and eat it. Well, we don't see here. Let's see, uh, question 24. How did going out to hear John mesh with the other aspects of their lives? So let's say somebody goes out and hears John the Baptist. Uh, maybe they even get baptized. They respond to him. What does that mean for the rest of life? Does it mean that they quit their day jobs and went out and spent their time as a disciple of John? Apparently, at least some people did that. But what about the others? What about the others that were baptized? Did, did they just stay out in the wilderness with John or did they go back to work and maybe just go out on Sabbath or whatever day of the week John gathered his people? We don't know. Uh, question 25, what lasting change, if any, did their response to John make in their lives? Again, we don't know any, any answer to this. The text doesn't tell us this, but I wonder, wonder how many people went out there and, and heard the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit as John preached to them. And they responded. They responded in faith. They gave their lives to God. What difference did it make? Did, were these people later people that connected with Jesus? Or did they just go about their lives? Right, let's see, question 26. What did confessing their sins look like? Because it says here that people confessing, it says confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Did they go over to John and say, hey, John, here's my sin list? Or did they just start speaking out loud in front of each other? Or did John say, okay, y'all find each find a couple other people and get in small groups and confess your sins to each other? And that's what I did in my band meeting this morning. I, my band meeting, I meet with two other guys. And one of the things we do in our time is we confess our sins to each other and extend forgiveness. We don't know what that looked like here. Um, let's see, question 27. Why did they confess their sins? Is confession of sins something we should do? If we should do it, is it a once and forever done kind of thing or something we should do uh, throughout our life? Well... I think there might be an initial confession where we look at our life as a whole and say, hey, God, I'm a sinner. I, I need to confess to you that I am a sinner. I need to say the same thing about my sin. 
uh, that you do, that, that it's breaking of relationship, that, it, that it's horrible, that it goes against you, that it dishonors you. But then later in my life as a Christian, I find that I still sin sometimes. In fact, I'm pretty good at it. I even like it sometimes. So I still need to confess. So here, here we as Christians would go to say 1 John 1, 9, where, where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So question 28, uh, why did John address and eat as he did? Why did Mark think we should know this? Um, I think, again, going back to John's self-understanding. I think John's self-understanding partly came from what his father, Zechariah, shared with him from what the angel had told Zechariah. I think John's self-understanding also came from reading Isaiah, especially chapter 40, where it talked about the voice calling in the wilderness. I think uh, John's self-understanding also came from Malachi, especially Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But I think the stories of Elijah also shaped John's self-understanding. And we'll see more about John and Elijah later when Jesus answers questions about John the Baptist. Uh, good morning, JB. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, so I think maybe part of John's dressing and eating is following that Elijah model. Uh, let's see, verse, uh, I mean, question 29. If John's message was what we see in verses 7 and 8, what connection does this have with repentance and forgiveness? Let's see, verse 7 and 8 says, uh, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, notice there's nothing there about forgiveness, nothing there about repentance, but it's presumed. But this is only two verses, and you can imagine John's preaching out in the wilderness, so his messages go on a little longer than the 15 seconds it takes to read two verses. Uh, let's see. Um, question 30. At this stage, how much did John know about the one coming after him? Well, we see that John knew that he was going to be a powerful person. We see that John says that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. See that he's a person of such great honor that John's not even worthy to untie his shoes. Uh, pretty big stuff there. But did he know him when he saw him? Yeah, we get some clues, say, in Matthew, where John uh, shows reluctance to baptize Jesus when he comes. But did he know what Jesus was going to do? I don't think so. Uh, verse, uh, question 31. We know from Luke that John and Jesus were cousins. Did they know they were cousins? Uh, what kind of relationship, if any, had they had growing up? Now, we know that, that Mary uh, visits John's mother, and, uh, the, and Elizabeth says that the, the baby, baby John the Baptist, is leaping in her womb to greet Jesus. So they were in the same present. They were in presence of each other when they were in the womb. But were they ever together after that? Did they grew up together at all. We don't know. We don't know anything about their relationship. Uh, question 32, why is John so relatively unworthy? Why does John, who is a prophet, John, who is a messenger, John, who Jesus says there's nobody greater in the kingdom up to this point than John the Baptist, 
why, why does John count himself so relatively unworthy compared to Jesus? Question 33, what does it mean to baptize with the Holy Spirit? We know what it is to baptize with water. What does it mean to baptize with the Holy Spirit? When did Jesus do this? Is there, is, are we going to run into some passage in the gospel where it said, and then Jesus went out and he baptized his followers with the Holy Spirit? Uh, when Jesus does it, and how does he do it? What is the relationship, if any, between Christian baptism, when, when we get baptized in church, and baptism with the Holy Spirit? Uh, question 34 follows on that pretty closely. What did John's audience take him to mean by baptism with the Holy Spirit? John's saying the words, did they understand it? How did they understand it? Again, we don't know. Uh, question 35, I only had 35 questions uh, for these verses. Uh, so, uh, my question there is, baptism with water is normal for Christians today and throughout the ages. What about baptism with the Holy Spirit? In, in your experience in church, is baptism with the Holy Spirit normal? If you have a Pentecostal background, it is, because Pentecostals talk about that all the time. But what about Methodists? Do, do we talk about baptism by the Holy Spirit? And in our heritage, we did. Maybe we're missing something there. Well, those are, are my questions. Um, if you had joined me on Zoom today, and I'm going to try this on Zoom again next week, then I'm going to invite you to share your own questions. If you can't join me on Zoom, I'm going to invite you to leave comment your questions as comments there in the comments on Facebook so that uh, we can interact with each other. So we're going to proceed on in Mark chapter 1 next week. So I'd encourage you to read the next sections uh, beginning at verse 9 and come up with your own questions. I, hopefully I've given you some idea of the kinds of questions I come up with. The kind of questions I come up with are likely different to at least some degree than the questions you'd come up with. So come up with your own questions. Uh, and that's how you learn. So uh, let's pray today. Father, I thank you for your word through John the Baptist, through Jesus, through the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it would come alive to us, that we would find ways to imagine ourselves into these stories and draw closer to you through it. We hear Mark here talking about him baptizing with water and Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that sounds like a good thing to us. Baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us completely yours. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, the next teaching time I'll have on here is probably a Sunday school. Uh, do that here on, uh, do it. try to do it on Zoom maybe. Uh, if not Zoom, then here on our Facebook page with Facebook Live. Sunday morning at 10, we're working through the adult Bible study quarterly. I don't remember what our text is for this Sunday, but if you have the book at home, you can look it up. So uh, please invite people to this. And if you have questions about how to join in Zoom, ask, and I'll try to get you on. But I will see y'all later. Bye.